Hey, it's Fan Club. I'm your host, Ross Martin. Here we go. Here we are at the season finale. And as we were figuring out what the heck we should do for this final episode, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Pineapple Street's co-founder, called me up, and here's what she said. Hey, Ross, why don't we do an episode about what you're a fan of? So I just blurted out whatever came to my mind first. Poetry, for sure. And I think you might not believe me, but mixed martial arts. And so on today's show, I have mixed my passion for the arts. First, mixed martial artist Chael Sonnen who, let's just say, does not hold back. Everybody's in an office or is on a job site somewhere that has somebody in that office or in that job site that if they could get away with fighting, they would do it. It just turns out I'm in an industry where I can't. After that, I interviewed David Lehman. He's one of my favorite poets and editors, and he created and curates the best American poetry anthologies. Robbing a a grocery store and shooting someone is a bad thing. Writing a bad poem may accomplish something good. These are a few of my favorite things on today's fan club. Okay, here's my first passion. Mixed martial arts. MMA for short. So here's how MMA works. It's human theater. It's pure, raw, physical activity and emotion. There's ways to fight, whether it's Muay Thai or Jiu Jitsu, and styles that are competing with one another, and you don't ever quite know how it's going to end up. It's not just about pure force. There's craft, and there are good guys, and there are bad guys. And my next guest is definitely one of the bad guys. I'm a gangster. Vanilla Silva wants to jump me in Brazil. You try coming to Westland and doing that, I will bury you in my backyard. Here's the bottom line for Vanilla Silva. You attack me, I'm gonna do some very bad things to you within the rules. You attack me in front of my wife, and there are no rules. I'm excited and a little bit scared of Chael Sonnen. Chael, welcome to Fan Club. How are you doing? Still famous and still rich. Thanks for bringing it up, Ross. <laughs> Every single guest we've had on Fan Club whether they admit it to me or not, wants to be liked. And I'm talking like Charlemagne the God, Tom Colicchio, uh, everybody we've had on. You don't need to be liked, right? Why do you not need to be liked? Yeah, you know, I didn't, I've never understood that. I've seen that so many times, too. And you'll even hear guys come on and go, I don't care what you say about me. Just spell my name right. It's like, man, none of that's true. You guys are all a bunch of crybabies. You know, particularly in the sport that I'm in, it's, it's the biggest bunch of pretend tough guys. And I watch them get their feelings hurt in 140 characters or less on a daily basis on Twitter. And then they're coming out and they're doing apology tours and they're trying to explain themselves. Man, the people can shove it up their ass. Why, why would I ever apologize for something? If you don't like it, don't buy it but i'm the biggest draw on the sport for a reason i sell more tickets more t-shirts and more pay-per-views than anybody and i think it's because i'm just a real guy 
And if I'm wrong about that, I, maybe I don't know the formula, but I've never understood why somebody would come out. I even know nice guys. Ross, I know really nice guys. But they come out with a fake act and want people to think they're the world's nicest guy. And fans see through that, man. They see through that so fast. And I see so many athletes. You know, athletes are a bunch of dum-dums to start with. It's almost one of the requirements to be an athlete. You have to have a level of a lack of intelligence. And they come out and they think they can pull the mask and the wool over everybody's eyes. Like, oh, look at me. I'm the smartest guy in the room and I'm going to put up a front that nobody's going to see through it. And the second people see through it, they see that you're trying to be a really nice guy. They just assume you're covering up a real scumbag. And some of these guys are good, solid guys. But when they come out with an act that they're the world's nicest guy, people just make the assumption that they're covering up something much worse. Just come out and be forward or turn down the interview. If you don't want to come out and be straight with people, just turn down the interview. So I, I see that. Like People expect it of you. They expect you to be real genuine and authentic and and you feel like you owe that to them right I feel like that's the entire point. I mean, I realize when you're doing something like this, you know, even talking to you right now, I'm not under subpoena to be here. Okay. I'm not under oath. I, I can, I can say to you anything I want, but I do feel that if I accept the interview to come on your show, I need to answer your questions straight and not everything is moonlight and canoes. And this is one thing that the, the fans of our sport can relate to. Everybody's in an office or is on a job site somewhere that has somebody in that office or in that job site that if they could get away with fighting they would do it it just turns out i'm in an industry where i can so if i don't like a guy there's nothing wrong with saying it and all this hollywood make-believe martial arts and bow and my father says it's a bunch of crap man this is a fist fight in a steel cage between two half naked men for a paycheck in the approval of a drunken audience so who gives a damn anyway i love it how has the relationship between a fan and and a fighter changed over the course of your career? You know, we've just got a lot more fans. It's the fastest growing sport in the world, and several people have made that claim, but they can't quantify it. You could quantify it with the numbers in terms of the television ratings, the live uh, gates, the receipts. Uh, it, it just the numbers in MMA is growing so fast. And one of the reasons it is the fastest growing sport is it's such a new sport. It's very easy for us to move that margin year after year. It's a little tougher for a sport like football or basketball or baseball that's a real mainstay and has been around and already has a huge chunk of the market. So, uh, you know, one thing that I have seen is 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 how attached, and it just never ceases to, su- su- to surprise me, that these fake tough guys that go into MMA are just such a bunch of babies and you know a fan can turn on them but it's not real the relationship isn't real anyway the fan can cheer for whoever they want I see it in football all the time you'll see fans that just love those players so much that player doesn't give a damn about that fan he's a whore that will leave that city that team that night if he got a bigger offer somewhere else and so it just turns into the fans cheering for laundry I mean anybody could be wearing that jersey and the fans going to cheer for him and I can't relate to that myself I've got to have some kind of a personal relationship and it's one of the reasons that I don't like athletes and I don't watch sports uh but if if I did if I did get compelled to go and watch somebody uh perform in their sport I've got to have some kind of a personal relationship where I know the person and I'll vet them I'll vet them in my own way is this a real guy or not did he sacrifice and pay a price and he wants to be there and he wants to win at all costs and if he does then he's going to get my support but uh, I've got the right as a ticket buyer to change my mind anytime I want and it's nothing personal The thing I've really come to respect about you, many things, one of the things I've come to respect about you is that when you make a mistake in a fight and 
something doesn't go your way. Afterwards, you'll own up to it. You're like, yeah, I, I fucked that up. I didn't mean to do that. Or like, yeah, I, I should have done that differently. You don't sugarcoat it. You just say like, yeah, I, I wish it didn't happen like that. And I wonder if, if there's ever been an interaction with a fan or many fans where you've done something that you're like, shit, I wish I didn't say it like that. Or if I could just have that moment back, I, I would do it differently. Has that ever happened with your fans? Yeah, you know what? I had I had to give a guy an apology. I was in Brazil. I have to I have to make this a long story because you have to understand where my mind was. I was in Brazil doing the Ultimate Fighter with Vandalay, and I got jumped. And it's the first time in my life I've ever been jumped, where it's multiple guys physically attacking and punching and kicking me uh, all at one time. So I come right back from that, and I touch down in Vegas for a show, and then I'm going to finally go home. And I was in a, a restaurant at the Mandalay Bay, and there was a group of guys, and this guy said to me, uh, I walked over to his table and he stood up and he kind of pushed me. He was a smaller guy. He kind of pushed me and he said, uh, oh, he said, we kicked your ass. And I, that, those were the words he used, but I thought, oh, he means we're going to kick your ass. And so I pushed him and he went back about three or four inches. And then there was like a bench there and that cut him off at the knees. So then he, he falls all the way over. And I look back at his table and I thought they were all going to jump up and it was going to be a melee. And they were all looking at me like, what a jerk. What'd you do that for? So I, I yelled at all of them to, as a way of, of scaring them because I thought I was going to get jumped again. I went to the oh, bathroom God. and I kind of processed what happened and I came back and I go, I stopped back at their table and I said, hey, I don't know what just happened, but I, I definitely misread the situation. I said, you said we're going to kick your ass. And I, I got defensive and he goes, no, I said, we kicked your ass. He, and it was it, the Winter Olympics were going on. They were a group of Canadians that had just beaten the U.S. in hockey. Right. And I was like, listen, my mind is in a weird spot. Is there any room <laughs> left for an apology? Can I pick up the tab and we call it good? And they go, actually, we already paid the tab. But uh, if you do a couple of pictures, it'd be cool. But I did feel like a tremendous jerk and still do. And I was. So I, I owed that guy an apology and I did my best to make up. But I just knew, hey, there's no way out of this one forever. That group of Canadians is just going to think I'm a prick. But I, I misread the situation. I screwed up. What about being surprised by your fans? Has anything ever happened where a fan did something that surprised you? You know, I, yeah, I've had a, a, very, uh, a number of very nice gestures. Things that are sent to the house or letters to the gym that have made me feel good. I've had fans that knew it was my birthday again through social media and sent me little little things to the gym. And it makes me feel good. And I can never really thank them. You know, somebody gives you a present, you got to thank them. But I don't have any way to. It, it just showed up at the gym. And so I, I enjoyed it. But it, it did make me feel good. And I thought that was a nice thing to do as a fan. I'm a fan of a few people. Uh, the greatest athlete to ever walk this earth is a, a young lady named Simone Biles. She won the all-around Olympic gold medal. She's the defending world and Olympic champion. I am such a fan. I would do something like that for her. If I had an address for her, I would send her a birthday present just to show her my appreciation because I'm so in awe of her. But I don't know how to do that stuff. I don't know how, how fans find you and get your address and take the time to write you a handwritten letter. But yeah, some of those things, man, it, you're a regular human being. That, that makes you feel good when somebody remembers you. Besides Simone, what are you a fan of that people would be surprised to know? 
Uh, I'm a huge fan of politics. For me, that is a sport. I, I couldn't tell you about any any Super Bowl. I've never seen a football game in my life, and I'm not going to start now. I've never seen a basketball game, and my uncle won the Olympics and two NBA championships. I'm just not a big sports fan, but politics are my sport. I could tell you about a debate between two senatorial candidates in New Hampshire five years ago. I love it. I love the mental warfare of it. I love the gamesmanship. I love the alpha off. I love the body language. Um, you ran for office, didn't you? You ran for office. I ran for office twice. I won twice. One time I had to step down because I broke a whole bunch of laws. You know, that's the thing. I left office the way a, a real guy should leave office, which is in handcuffs. Um, and I think I deserve a little <laughs> bit of credit for that. But I think you get a lot of credit for that. I want to ask you one final question, Chael. You got a lot of fans of yours listening to this podcast right now. What do you want to say to them? If I was to give a message to the fans, man, I would just tell them the face that runs the place, the man with the biggest arms, the greatest charm, and that does all the harm is coming to the decrepit, ridden, run-down Madison Square Garden in the disgusting New York City on June 24th, live, free, and only on pay-per-view. I'm better than John Jones, I sound better than Sean Combs, and you can ask around because I'm even better than John Holmes. I want to thank Chael Sonnen for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Chael. It's been a great pleasure to have you. I bet you mean that. You know, a lot of people say that. It's like, it's like, it's like uh, hey, here's your hat. What's your hurry? But I can tell, Ross, with you, it's sincere. I can tell you really mean that. And I want to tell you back, sincerely, you're welcome. That was the infamous MMA fighter, Chael Sonnen. And yes, of course, he has a podcast too. It's called You're Welcome with Chael Sonnen. You should check it out. Okay, now we're going to shift gears just a little bit to poetry. I first heard David Lehman at a poetry reading on the Lower East Side at the KGB bar. And I'll never forget the experience because it was one of the first times I'd ever seen a poet read his work in a way that brought it to life off the page so I could see and feel the characters and the worlds that he was expressing. Oh, Ella, I hope you and Billie Holiday are comparing notes in heaven right now while I am back on earth hearing you sing. It was just one of those things. So this is why I'm such a big fan, and I really wanted to have him on today's show. David Lehman, Welcome to Fan Club. It's great to be here, Ross. You know, I think there's something about the way you think about poetry that you want everybody to enjoy it. And you've dedicated your life to the practice, the teaching, and the amplification of poetry and poets. Would you say that's true? I would agree with that. I believe there are all, always people around who say things like, in any given era, at any given moment, there are five poets, five poets who will survive. Uh, so that we look back at 1820 and there's Keats, Shelley, Byron, Wordsworth, Coleridge, a couple of others, and that's it. And that's a very exclusive approach. I don't like to think that way about the present moment. Let the future determine which of our poets today will be read a hundred years hence. In the uh, present, what harm could there be in people writing poetry? Uh, bad poetry does not is not necessarily a bad thing. There are many things that we could rightly condemn. Robbing a 
a, a grocery store and shooting someone is a bad thing. Writing a bad poem may accomplish something good, and maybe we can get that person to write a better poem. So I, I think poetry in a democratic, uh, egalitarian country is not merely an aristocratic conceit that uh, survives from earlier eras. We do a book uh, called The Best American Poetry every year, and so the word best uh, seems to indicate that there's an elite quality, which I think is very important, but at the same time, we have 75 poems every year, and there's there's a populist element. Yeah, to me, Best American Poetry is an example of an effort of turning poetry into a mainstream sport. It's not to take anything away from the poems themselves or the poets themselves. It's to say, hey, you know what, we're going to package this up in a way that's not scary to people who don't read poetry all the time or people who don't buy books of poetry. This is very accessible. You can get the best American poetry 2017, 2016, 2015, and in each one of them, you will find work that you're not afraid of or intimidated by, but you could be a fan of. And I think it sort of makes it accessible to everyone. I, I hope that's the, the case. And I also know that when one works only for oneself, that's limiting. Whereas when one does some service to the art itself and to other practitioners of the art, you're doing something really good. I want to just transition to David Lehman, the poet. You wrote this book. It's your newest book, Poems in the Manner of. The whole book is you trying on the voice of the poets that you love most, that you revere, and stepping into their shoes for a poem or two and trying to speak from that. And you, you do it for Emily Dickinson, for Shakespeare, Frost, Hemingway, Plath, Whitman, Neruda, many others, a bunch of modern poets who I love are in the book. How is this an expression of your fandom? Well, I love these poets. And in a way, the book Poems in the Manner of is an homage to the poets that influenced me. Charles Baudelaire, let's say, John Keats, and so on. And it's an attempt to communicate the enthusiasm I have for these poets and hope that the reader will get that. And uh, perhaps reading one of my poems in the manner of uh, Goethe or Mayakovsky or uh, Apollinaire will go to the source. But the other thing is that, you know, Oscar Wilde said, if you if you give a man a mask, he'll tell you the truth. And in a way, writing poems in the manner of other people, you're also expressing yourself. And I hope that's the case. Uh, In a way, it's a book that tries on, as a ventriloquist would, the voices or styles or manner of uh, dozens of others, but it's also uh, inhabiting their space, but also incorporating it into the the self of the writer. It's very clear from your own work. I mean, this book is a catalog of the moves David Lehman has learned from other poets. It's almost like you watched them do their thing, and then you say, like, oh, I know what I can learn from that. And some of it's stylistic, some of it's formal, some of it's conceptual. Um, there's a, a great one in here, which is like the briefest of all, which is the Emily Dickinson poem. It starts out with your introduction. You say, Emily Dickinson's terseness and use of dash marks 
are as inviting as her ability to render aspects of experience, an afterlife, for example, that defy rational intellect. And then you wrote, you write the poem, poem in the manner of Emily Dickinson, Paradise. That's it. And after the paradise, because people are listening, not reading that, there's the M dash. Paradise, something Emily Dickinson never achieved, which is sort of the irony of it, I think. Like, never felt that way, I don't think. Hard to know. Um, it, it, it seems to me, I mean, she, she's a great, great poet. And I think that her poems are, are secretly, maybe not so secretly, uh, sexual often. Mm-hmm. And she embraces the idea of ecstasy. She also writes about the afterlife as if she's been there. I mean, she writes about death as if she's... Uh, Coming back from it. She's, yeah, she's already done that. On her gravestone, it says, uh, called back. That's what it says on her gravestone, which is really eerie. Are you trying to create an experience for a reader that is, in your mind, a David Lehman-esque experience well i think i'm also i'm trying in a way to demystify poetry so that when i wrote the daily mirror on the basis of writing a poem a day every day for a couple of years i think the idea was to create something that's a journal that's a a sequence of poems amounting to one long poem but it, it also proposes to the average person the idea that you can write something every day and what comes of it is uh, perhaps a diary, but perhaps it's a work of art. And it's not something holy that you have to wait for the lightning of inspiration to hit you on the head. You can manufacture your own inspiration. Well, let's talk about the book, The Daily Mirror. So it, it is one of my favorite books. One of the reasons I love it so much is because it expresses your fandom. You've found a way through these poems to not just appreciate and celebrate, but something more like you you are um, channeling the people and the ideas and the sports teams and the drinks that you love most. You're speaking through them in the poem. And, you know, whether you're talking about Frank Sinatra or John Ashbery or the New York Yankees or Ella Fitzgerald, they're all in here. Can you talk about how this book and these poems are expressions of your fandom? Yes. I feel that we tend to waste a lot of mental and emotional energy on the things that we despise or or dislike, things that are painful, a bad boss, let's say. It's a more creative and more fruitful to concentrate on pleasures, the things that we like living for. It's very affirmative. And you mentioned uh, Ella Fitzgerald. Ella Fitzgerald has given me so much pleasure over the years, or Sinatra, or the New York Yankees, or the New York Mets. It's nice to uh, channel that pleasure into poetry. Well, they see, to me, in, in your poems, the people you're talking about seem more real. Because you're, you don't, you're not worshiping them. They're, they feel like they're present. I'm going to give you an example because I'm going to ask you to read your own poem, if you don't mind, which is the May 15th poem. It's the Sinatra, one of your poems. Oh, yes. Frank Sinatra. I, I, will you read it for us? Of course. Okay. This was the day he died. He, he died Pacific Coast time, May 14th, but it was already May 15th here in, in uh, New York. And 
it was 1998. This is what I wrote. May 15. Sinatra, snapping out of a haze, noticed me sitting across from him. Who the fuck are you? Just another fan, I said, on the day he died. I made anagrams out of his name. Satin, sin, stain, stare, train, rain, star. And figured out my last message. I mean, what I would say to him now. Your goodbye left me with eyes that cry. On the other hand, you left me the history of your voice, the record of the American century from Roosevelt to Reagan. You will live on. Whenever I need to hear you, it has to be you. Sing, I get along without you very well. Strand's favorite, or I'm a fool to want you. My choice, when your lover has gone. I mean, he really lives on through you in listening to you speak and and reading your poems where Sinatra appears. I'm going to ask you to read one more from this book, October 15th. And I find this poem so remarkable because it's where sports and poetry come together. So let's have you read it. This is from uh, October 15th. October 15th. Before I read your poem, dear Charles, I'd have planned on... Keats at second base, Shelley at short, Wordsworth in center, Coleridge in left, Byron at first base, John Clare in right, Lee Hunt at third, Blake catching, and Whitman, a surprise starter on the mound with Poe available for short relief (laughs) in Yankee Stadium where the October shadows lengthen in left field. As Yogi Berra once put it, it gets late early there. It's amazing. Can I ask you uh, one final question? Do you love mixed martial arts? Well, you know, uh, when I hear the phrase mixed martial arts, I like to think of uh, men and women and that it's uh, nude. (laughs) Nude uh, uh, martial arts. Well, Well, David Lehman, thank you so much for joining us on Fan Club. It's been a real honor and pleasure to talk to you. Pleasure's all mine. David Lehman is a poet and the series editor for the Best American Poetry Anthologies, which you can pick up at any bookstore anywhere, and you can check it out at bestamericanpoetry.com. Well, that's it for Fan Club. Fan Club is a V by Viacom and Pineapple Studios production. Brooke DeVard is our executive producer. I'm Ross Martin. And if this is your first time listening, go back and check out all the other episodes. They're amazing. This has been fun. I love you guys. Thank you for listening. 